Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of 2020 Trustees Expert View podcast and today I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Lane from Mercer and Jerome Melser who's the lead advisor to One Capital Back Journey Plan Solution and that's very relevant because today we are going to be talking about the types of situations where the use of third-party capital to smooth the scheme's journey might actually be very helpful uh, but also what might be given up for that support that's being offered. And, and Adam, I'd really like to start from the beginning on this one. Let, can you please remind us what, what problems are these capital-backed solutions actually trying to solve for trustees and, and scheme sponsors? Sure, Liam. Um, I think a little bit of market context is kind of why this is a problem to be solved. And that is the vast majority of UK DV schemes have experienced a significant improvement in funding position. And now a lot of them are kind of approaching or are 100% funded on a cash funding type basis. And what that has led to is de-risking and often the end of cash contributions. So naturally, trustees and sponsors, their mind is turning towards the ultimate end game. But therein lies the crux of the problem, if you will. And the dilemma is, do we take more risk to close that final gap? Or do we de-risk and extend the time period to get to that ultimate time frame? So there's a really kind of often awkward and kind of intractable challenge between do we kind of expose ourselves to market risk, i.e. get there sooner, or do we expose ourselves potentially to sponsor covenant risk by taking our time? Obviously, this is very scheme specific, but there can often be a tension. And this is where a capital back journey plan of some form can help bridge this gap. Um, and effectively, the way it can work is by passing a large part of that market risk to a third party to enable the risk taking. So the idea being trustees get secure members benefits sooner and the sponsor removes the risk of having to pay cash contributions. Um, so effectively, that is the dilemma, which hopefully these kind of capital back journey plans could solve for individual schemes. That's that's a good explanation and, and, and a really good articulate, clear articulation of, of the dilemma, actually, that a lot of schemes are facing at the moment. J J J Jerome, um, just, just taking that kind of general context, could you give me one or two specific situations that are most likely to find um, the use of third-party capital helpful? Sure, sure. So the, the the typical scenario that we'll be looking at for where a capital back journey plan will be would would work is the is is the classic case of a scheme that's well funded, has an objective of getting to buy out, but is still say 10 to 15 percent short of that target. Uh, and there's a irre irreconcilable tension between the sponsor and trustee about risk appetite. Trustees want to protect downside. Uh, sponsor doesn't want to write the check. And I think it's 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 a scenario that Adam really has generally has explained generally, which is how do you resolve that tension? And that's where a capital-backed arrangement can very much fit the bill by supporting and facilitating more uh, a, a riskier investment strategy that than the one the trustees would sign to absent the capital, but a shorter time frame, which is much more in line with the, with, the, with the sponsor's requirements. And from the sponsor perspective, what it also brings by where value is certainty about the cash cost of achieving that outcome. And that could be zero. It could be that from that starting point, there's no need for further sponsor funding, which again, could be particularly attractive to the, to the, to the sponsor. But there are other scenarios moving away from that core one of that, you know, bridging to buy out scenario. Another one is, and this is a case, a sort of situation that we've seen come up time and time again in discussions in the market, is using the capital back structure to underpin a recovery plan. 
So rather than targeting buyout at the end of the journey, it is technical provisions, full funding on technical provisions basis. And what and the structure operates in the same way, except the target outcome is full funding. And from the company perspective, it gives them a, a, a near full and final settlement of their recovery plan. So rather than their previous experiences, which could have been that on a three yearly basis, that recovery plan gets reset, maybe even extended or raised. Here we have a structure which gives them a much higher degree of certainty that what they sign up to in the recovery plan is what they're going to have to deliver and no more. Um, a final one just worth touching on is um, is another scenario where many schemes have gone through a series of pensioner buy-ins to de-risk in a phased way. That's a very that's a very typical, you know, it's a common strategy in the market at the moment. But then when you move on to the, the deferreds for well-known reasons, deferred insurance pricing is much more uh, it is certainly uh, less less economically viable and uh, uh, looking as alternatives for de-risking deferreds is something that many trustees maybe struggle to find. Um, so a, a CBJP style structure can actually be targeted on a tranche basis just to cover that designated subset of the liabilities, i.e. only the only the deferreds and therefore a corresponding block of assets are allocated to the CBJP. So it's a, a partial CBJP, if you wish, but again, another way to help trustees on their de-risking journey. Thanks, Jerome. And I guess so, so, so that all makes sense and those those three very clear scenarios, you know, re resonate very, very clearly. Um, just getting a bit technical for, for a moment, how does third party capital actually enable um those those better outcomes in in your view so um it, it's actually striking a better place in terms of the risk reward trade-off for the scheme um we're trying to we're trying to unlock a situation where the trustees will will um feel comfortable with accepting a riskier investment strategy the, the external capital helps them to that point by providing first loss protection which means that in those sort of it, it, with a risk of investment strategy, you will have a larger proportion of scenarios where you could have an adverse outcome. We're putting up external capital to absorb or offset those adverse outcomes, which means that the scenarios which then become post capital, the, the dangerous ones are pushed so much further into the weeds that this becomes an acceptable path forward for the trustees. So it's first loss capital, which unlocks these alternative investment strategies. Adam, from an advisor perspective, do you have anything to to add or a, diff a different view on 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 that trade-off? Not a different view, but I think the question when I've worked with clients on this, and the one I think any trustee should be asking themselves and any sponsor is, if I enter into one of these solutions, am I sufficiently better off than status quo? And that's that seemingly question that seemingly simple question is actually fairly complex to answer, but I think that is the hurdle by which the C, these kind of caps back journey plans need to jump over. Um, and I should say as well, with all of these solutions, they're extremely scheme specific and situation specific. So it isn't as simple as uh, a risk and return trade off. You have to understand the dilemma between the covenant and the trustee relationship with the sponsor and how those actors may change over the life of that uh, particular arrangement. And perhaps we can touch on that later. And I, and I guess uh, front and foremost, uh, from, from a scheme perspective, from a trustee perspective from, and from a sponsor's perspective, they'll be thinking about what they might lose um, out, of, out of this. And, and I've heard that a few times uh, when, when, when sponsors have been thinking about cap using third party capital to help support journey plans. Yeah. I mean, for, for in your view, um, 
what might schemes and sponsors actually lose from going into a into a capital back journey plan structure? Yeah, before I answer that, I'd say I think it's fair to say you don't get something for nothing in life, and this is definitely the case here. So I think you lose you are losing three things. Um, so I think the first thing you're losing is a degree of upside potential. So you you are effectively giving up a degree of that kind of potential upside to a third party who's providing the capital. That's just that is the nature of the economics that's going on here. And just within that, that first element, you are also giving up the time period to get there. So you're effectively fixing your journey plan time date. So that's now in place. So you can't get there any earlier, which means you're opening yourself up to regret risk, but also opportunity risk. So if there's a new WYSI solution or very attractive buying pricing or who knows, you're effectively giving that up. So you are giving up upside potential. Second, you are very definitely giving up a degree of control with respect to the investment strategy. So for any third party to put in cash into your scheme, they'll want a degree of control, they'll want it locked in, and they want to make sure that's all nailed down before you sign on the line. So that might feel uncomfortable for some trustees and some sponsors. And thirdly, I think you are, it's not so much what you're losing, but you are taking on a new set of risks which are new and different to what you've been exposed to before. Not least the counterparty risk associated with the capital provider, and arguably, depending on the solution, lower levels of diversification within the investment strategy required to generate the returns needed to make these structures work. So I guess to wrap up, there are there are clearly benefits to this approach, but there are also clearly some kind of very certain things you're also giving up. That's, that's helpful. And I guess you can place a mirror to, to each one of those um, losses and, and also look at the flip side of that. But Jerome, I'm, I guess I'm interested in 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 your view on on those three areas and and actually maybe if you could take each one in turn no indeed thank you Nadim. i mean that, that that's a that's a that's a well articulated list of challenges adam um and one that we have encountered in in in, in various discussions in the market um so a few observations in return taking those in order uh, on upside um which i think i'd generalize perhaps and maybe you might think this is not quite the right generalization but it's really about um um optionality so the the ability you know a scheme may benefit from market events and that could be on the asset side it could be on buyout pricing um it could be on longevity pricing there are all sorts of ways in which unexpected gains could be there available to be collected in the market or had they not locked into a cbjp uh and i and i think the observation of that on that is that of course that's a truth i mean one can't deny that that, that fact and we have seen uh, for example, if you go back two years, beginning of the pandemic, uh, pockets of extremely attractive buyout pricing. Uh, if a scheme had been locked into a CBJP prior to that, they would not have been able to pick that up and perhaps get a quicker, better deal than otherwise. Um, I think, though, on the other hand, how often do trustees in particular, uh, how often are they set up to take advantage of optionality in the market? Um, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about um, veering or trending towards having a greater degree of liquid investments in one portfolio but of course against that is this point about well if i, I couldn't take up opportunities in the market so i and and i think therefore that the the optionality is there as something that you could lose is it something that genuinely trustees would actually be able to take advantage of if if and again there's the if around whether it would pop up in the first place um i think you know so so when we talk to trustees and sponsors about a loss of optionality we often find the idea of certainty of the outcome which is really embedded into the idea of a cbjp being actually the relatively more attractive 
attribute that they want to go for, even if that means giving up something they might actually never have used in the first place. I think control and risks, which are the other two issues, are both manageable to a very large extent through the contracting itself. Um, and one of the virtues of a CVGP style structure is that you can bespoke the contract terms for the needs of each particular case. So when it comes to control, uh, in particular of the investment strategy, um, typically you'd expect the capital arrangement to have extremely fine degrees of pre-agreed controls within the mandate negotiated up front. So whilst it's true that trustees can no longer change where their money is invested, can no longer change for the period of the CBJP, the asset classes, the managers, et cetera, um, they can bake in to the mandate collectively with the capital provider, a lot of very finely designed controls around that, very finely drawn tram lines around that. So whilst control is lost, they do determine how those, how, how the strategy must play out over the period. Um, so it's not, it's less passing control from the trustees to the capital provider. It's more pre-agreeing how the controls we put in place and that's a that that's that's jointly agreed in partnership up front and and i think that's also true about the risks embedded with investment strategy because you've got a tightly defined investment mandate you can then before stepping into the contract have your advisors look at those risks particularly in the edges in the corners and then advise upon whether these are tolerable in the context of the promise of capital yeah and and I did want to move on to investment strategy in a moment, but the one point I'd make on optionality or the one thing to, to really think about is, is, is the value of that, op of that optionality. Um, and I think, you know, whether we're talking about illiquids or binds or use, the use of third party capital, making decisions, you know, you can lose that optionality, but what is it worth? Is it worth nothing um, because something different and better doesn't come along? Um, is it actually um, negative because you've given up um, the value that you could have crystallized knowing that actually in five years time this scheme could be bought out you know what wh where is the upside beyond that target so it's it's really it's really helpful and, and really important I think to try and dig into the, the value of, of optionality um, when 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 that conversation happens but but Adam talking about investment strategy in particular if we, if we move on to that um, Clearly understanding the, the investment strategy sitting behind uh, any kind of third party capital backed solution is, is, is important. What, what does a, is there a typical strategy that's being, uh, that's being used and, 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 and if so, what, what, what does that look like? Yeah, the, there are a number of solutions in the market in this space now. So you do see significant variation in the details, but I think there are some common themes which we can draw out for your listeners. Um, in particular, kind of what you when you open the box on these things, the asset classes underneath it look very like fixed income type assets. But that's not to say they're low risk in terms of investment grade bonds. It's 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 something different to that. So what you typically see is a big mix of high yielding securities and leveraged investment grade type assets. So the actual portfolio is typically kind of targeted a much higher yield than you're probably typical to with a normal DB scheme, and that's in part because kind of have to feed various mouths so you need to generate the return for the trustees yeah. and sponsor but you also need to be able to pay the third party capital providers the nature of these assets are also fixed term in nature so what that allows the capital providers to do is make the promises around the return and also allows the trustees and sponsors to do the analysis to say is that realistic and what are the downside risks associated with it you'd also typically see alongside this heavy kind of fixed income high yielding security type portfolio a liability hedge 
So trustees would normally demand that the liabilities be 100% hedged on some measure and also a liquidity plan to manage any derivatives within the portfolio and also to pay benefits. So all the typical things you'd expect from a, a high quality institutional benefit, uh, defined benefit portfolio. So just to draw out what the big differences, which I think the question you asked between a typical investment strategy and one of these new innovations is that at the top level, it's going to be more risky. It's going to be targeting a higher yield. Um, second, it's likely to contain probably more leverage, and more esoteric assets than what you're typically used to. It's going to look a lot like what you normally have. It's just going to be more of it, effectively. And also, this isn't always the case. You often see more concentrated portfolios with less diversification. So you kind of end up with a, a different type of portfolio than you normally would. Um, and that's fundamentally, you need all of those things really in some combination to generate the required returns uh, to underpin these strategies. So it very definitely represents on the face of it a re-risking for most schemes, but that needs to be balanced off against the capital injection. Um, so that, that that's kind of what you'd expect when you unbox these, when you unbox the kind of the Christmas present and look inside what's within that kind of portfolio within these structures. And, and, and Jerome, I guess from your from your perspective, um, you must have had numerous conversations with 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 sponsors and trustees about how to get comfortable with um, a, a philosophically different and potentially more risky investment strategy behind the scenes. How how do you how do you kind of articulate that comfort to them? Well, um, I mean, look, I mean, first, first things first, the trustees, as with any investment decision, will be looking to their advisors to review what's on the table. Um, this is slightly different in the sense this isn't a portfolio created by the trustees' own advisors and then them representing it to the trustees and explaining the risks. This is a third party bringing this portfolio to the table for the trustees' advisors to review. But ultimately, it's the same. it is the same process. They will kick the tires on it and provide advice to the trustees in much the same way as they would with their own constructions of a portfolio now that said um that said and, and obviously the toolkit the advisors would use whether that's a stochastic style tool or whether it's more a market stress deterministic style model uh that will be applied to this portfolio um but what 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 the, where the areas of focus will need to be is looking at over the particular time frame of the capital that journey so because there's a very specific outcome under review here, which is to provide to the trustees a particular funding level or an investment return over a particular period, it actually, I think, allows the trustees' advisors to be quite focused and laser-like in the analyses they will do. And what they really will want to do is assess how bad would markets need to be over that period for there to be a failure to deliver at the end of that five or six or seven or whatever the term of the period of, of the CBJP is over the term of, uh, of that period. Um, and that I think the focus will be mainly on, first of all, market stresses that compromise the ability to deliver on the outcome, and second, market events or more like liquidity events, which which mean that there isn't sufficient liquidity within the portfolio to deliver back to the trustees what they need during the journey. So there's testing the outcome and testing the journey. Um, our own perspective on how you would go about it is really that the right sort of toolkit will be more looking at deterministic shocks perhaps compared to what's happened historically and grading against historic worst outcomes over preceding decades what would these sort of scenarios have done to this portfolio on a forward-looking basis and maybe going well well beyond how bad things have been in the past um 
Our sense generally stochastic or ALM style analyses of particularly credit or fixed income instruments is a bit more challenging because of the dependency on the how the model is set up, the calibrations, et cetera. But that's obviously down to the trustees and their advisors. So our own view is that we would focus and help, we focus our efforts on helping the trustees and advisors in doing their analysis. And we think the main areas of focus would be risk, risk to the outcome, risk of a liquidity failure during the period. Makes sense. I'm I'm going to end with a, it's, it's, I guess it's a slightly cheek question in a sense, because because I think we know the answer here, but but legitimately, I think when first presented with with this idea where effectively there's an investment strategy that that returns more, uh, but you're not getting all of it, obviously you're getting something else instead. Um, the first question that comes to sponsors minds and sometimes scheme trustee minds is, well, can I just DIY this? Um, you know, what, why do I need a third party to help me create this? And I, in fact, when I get better outcomes, if, if, I, if I DIY this, I mean, Adam, could you, from an advisor perspective, give, give, give me a view on, on that question? Yeah, I mean, the flippant answer is yes, of course you can. Um, and arguably you're doing that all along anyway, aren't you? In terms of the sponsor is providing a degree of capital back into a defined benefit pension plan through the statutory regime and the cash funding regime. Um, I think what we need to be really careful about and clear on here is could or should trustees and sponsors put in additional capital over, over and above what's required to support the same sort of outcomes. Now, if that could be achieved, then of course you can mitigate some of the downsides I identified in terms of you can retain your optionality, you can retain all the upside, you don't, you don't have to lose the control, you can do that all yourself. So to a certain extent, that could be very beneficial. Of course, the counterpoint to that, the counterfactual is, why have you not done it before? And often the, the, the answer to that is because the capital is not available. Um, having said all of that, I just wanted to share with you um, a couple of Mercer clients kind of exploring this. Obviously, I can't give you any specifics, but give you some kind of archetypes of where individuals are DIYing this. And I, I, I do think, see this as a degree of an emerging trend. First, um, we're seeing where there's tension between the trustee and sponsors who've reached the point of buying out. Trustees want or feel like they have to buy out, but the company doesn't want them to for various reasons. In that kind of situation, you could put in a structure where the sponsor puts it across some form of capital to allow the scheme to run on for a, for a fixed period of time. So that's a DIY example. And another example might be where there's a disagreement between the trustee and the company about the level of risk to be taken. Typically where the trustee wants to take less risk and the company wants to take more risk, either for accounting reasons or for journey planning reasons. And again, I've seen situations where capital has been put up to allow and to kind of close off that potential disagreement. Um, so to wrap that up, yes, of course. Uh, and I'd be interested actually to, in Jerome's perspective on this, kind of the counterpoints to doing it yourself as well. And, and Jerome, before you, before you do, I mean, the, when you were going through that, Adam, I guess what, what came came through to me is it's really about risk allocation capital allocation where where where's that capital going to come from to support yeah. it and and where do you want this risk to sit if you don't want the risk to be sitting in the scheme or within the sponsor then potentially moving that risk over to a third party is 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 is, is where 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 it might go however if there's the ability or the appetite to keep the risk within the scheme or or or, or a sponsor then then maybe that's a way forward as well. So uh, for, for me, that's what it's about. It's about where do you want to where do you want to allocate that risk? Jerome, sorry. Uh, well, really interesting questions. Some very interesting answers already as well. I mean, it, 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 it is it is a question we do get ourselves directly 
in discussions with, with, with sponsors in particular. Um, I think an observation of that is um, that, that from a sponsor perspective, it's all about getting a return on capital. That's that's how you know that that's almost the duty of a board of directors of a company. Our duty to shareholders as well is to get a proper return on capital. Play, therefore, having additional capital beyond that negotiated with the trustees for the running of the scheme, then being locked up for this purpose, raises that question, creates a tension about: Are you a, is that efficient deployment of capital, or could you be doing better for shareholders putting that capital elsewhere? So even if capital is available, I think it's quite a difficult question to answer or a hurdle to clear, let's say, before you say, let's lock up capital to achieve a better outcome for the pension scheme. I think where you then get dragged into is, well, is the sponsor therefore looking to get a return on that capital? And then I think you move into a little bit of a murkier space because then you've got a sponsor who set up a scheme and was running it for the benefit of past and present employees, then using it or a related structure to make money out of. And I think that blurs, maybe not in the healthiest of ways, some lines here, which, actually gets taken off the table if you have an external third party coming in purely and simply on a very clear commercial construct to say here's capital here are the terms of the capital here's what we believe are the benefits to you of doing so and you can take it or leave it but it, it feels to me there's a clarity and a simplicity from having that sort of structure being run by an external party and of course all the technology and the and the, and the framework and the investment strategy already baked into that so the ip of that external arrangement comes for free Great. So the, the, those are all the questions that, that I had for today. And Adam, Jerome, I really, really appreciated appreciate you both um, jo joining me for, for this session. Um, to the listeners, obviously, uh, it'll be really good to listen, see you at the, at the next podcast. And until then, take care and cheers. Bye.